Let's turn to First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. We've been going through the book of First Peter. As you recall, the book of First Peter was written to prepare God's people for persecution that was coming. They were already being persecuted, but it was about to go to a different level. And God, graciously through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, prepared them through the teaching of this book, and I believe that he's using that to prepare us. We've talked about time and again that that the uh, Christian faith was not forged in a uh, manger in Bethlehem. The Christian faith was not forged at a palace, but the Christian faith was forged uh, on Calvary. And it's unique among all professions of the way to God. Every other heresy that's floated out there usually has in it some system of belief or some system of works in order to make you acceptable to God, not Christianity. Christianity is you cannot be acceptable to God on your own, and the only hope for you is God's rescue, and He did it through the mission of His Son exclusively. And salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And it's head and shoulders above every other claim to God or how you can be right with God. As a matter of fact, all the other claims come up with a standard of measure to downsize God and make Him knowable and make righteousness achievable on your own. It's rank and file pride, but not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ rips man's pride to shreds. And therefore we glorify Him and Him alone this morning for His great salvation through His dear Son. Let's read in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Could you stand with me in reverence and respect out of God's precious word? The scriptures say, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming your uh, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the field. The grass withers, and it flowers, and its flowers falls away, but the word of God endures forever. Now this is the word by which, which by the gospel was preached to you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. We've titled this series, He Will Testify of Me drawing from the fact that the Savior himself told the disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit was going to be to testify of the Son. We've talked about time and again that only 
the Son can only be known through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. God the Father planned our salvation. God the Son purchased it on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit makes it known through the Scriptures. And so as the God the Holy Spirit three, speaks through the incorruptible Word, the seed of the Word of God, and that Word goes down into a heart that God has made fertile and ready. That seed goes down in that heart, dies, and springs up into eternal life. We praise His name for that. The agency of the power is in the power of God's Word. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, to convict man, women, boys and girls of their sin and God's provision on Calvary. The identity of the one who died on the cross. Not just somebody who got in trouble with the, uh, the, with the uh, system of belief and religion and the Jewish uh, culture. But an offering of God, of His only Son, to reach and redeem lost people like you and I. He will testify of me. And we talked about last week and celebrated last week coming off the heels of the fact that we serve a living, we come as a living hope. We serve a living Savior. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've talked about time and again that when God spoke of the resurrection of His Son in Romans chapter 1, and He said that that event separated all other claims to faith and separated all other religious claims. It made them head and shoulders above all others because Jesus Christ is the only one who was crucified and rose again three days later. As a matter of fact, in the narrative we talked about as well by way of review that the word that it says that it uses in Romans chapter 1 to describe that resurrection event is the word from which we get the word horizon. And we talked about how the fact that the horizon marks the uh, line between heaven and earth, and when you look at the horizon, let it be a reminder of you of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because His resurrection sets Him apart from all other claims to faith and gives validation and power to our preaching. Our hope is set and secured because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then He went on to say and remind us, and we talked about this last week, that Christian faith was forged in the crucible of suffering. And we talked about last week even using the, the Uncle Tom stories as examples of how when the little rabbit, Br'er Rabbit, came upon Br'er Fox and he had set a trap for him by having a little tar baby and he started getting stuck to that tar baby and had a conversation and in so doing that, Br'er Fox came over and grabbed him and he was feeding him with information to try to deceive him, the little rabbit was. And he looked over and saw the briar patch over there and said, listen, whatever you do with me, don't, don't throw me in the briar patch. Don't throw me in the briar patch. Well, all along, he was trying to encourage him to throw him in the briar patch. And he threw him in the briar patch, and he goes over there, and he's thriving. And he looks at him, and he says, listen, what you don't understand is I was born in the briar patch. And that's kind of like the world. Everything the world throws at us is like, I'm going to throw them in the briar patch. That'll get them. That'll ruin their profession of faith. I'll stamp them out. I'll discourage them. Even the suffering of Job can be traced back to that, where the enemy makes accusations against God's elect. The only reason they serve you is because of what you do for them. You quit doing for them, they'll quit serving you. Well, you know what? We get thrown into the briar patch and God turns Satan on his ear and this world system and says, you know what? These people were forged in the briar patch of suffering of my dear son. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to his name. And so what he's saying to them right now is, is get ready for the suffering to come and don't think it's strange that you're going to be subject to it because the very profession of faith in which you rests 
rests upon the suffering of your Lord and your Redeemer and your Rescuer. You say, you know what? It's coming. It's on its way. But understand, understand that the prophets, the prophets prophesied that this was coming. They prophesied it was on its way. Look at the scriptures from Genesis all the way to the end of it in Revelation. The prophecy and the revelation of the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. Every bit of it is there from pillar to post. Even in the creation of Adam like we celebrated before and time and again and talked about how when God put the first Adam to sleep and reached it and grabbed his rib and from that formed his bride. God took the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and instead of putting him to sleep, put him to death and stuck a Roman spear in his side. And out comes blood and water. And out comes the bride of Christ, his church. Every bit of it was prophesied from the beginning. God had said, life is going to be in the substitute. It's going to be in the suffering of my dear son. Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Look what it says in verse 30. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but now has been made manifest. And the suffering of Jesus Christ is what purchased our salvation. And we talked about it last week, and this is all review. But by way of review, we talked about last week how that many Jewish scholars would look at the prophecies of the coming king in the Old Testament. And they would look at the promises that this king would also suffer. And they, they were confused by them. And they said, how could it be that he could be a coming king, but yet at the same time go through such incredible suffering? So they did what we do today. They did what's being done all over the world today in false pulpits where they said, okay, the suffering part is just allegorical. We'll just write that off as being an allegory to talk about the character of this leader. He must just be such a great leader that he's willing to put his own interest uh, 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 beneath the interests of the people. And so that suffering must be allegory. It must not be literal. But the kingdom stuff, that's literal. Yeah, yeah, that part, that part. We like that part. we got to come in king. And whoever oppresses us, and whoever's giving us a hard time, I don't care if it's the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and one day the Romans, he's going to take them under. He's going to occupy the throne of David. And we're going to be the big shot people that God's called us to be already because after all, we're chosen. We do the same thing with the Scriptures today. We love the part that talks about the coming kingdom and we embrace the part about ruling and reigning in life and we should rule and reign in life. And then we write off, in a practical sense, the part about suffering as if it's allegory. God didn't mean it. We do the same exact thing today. There's nothing new under the sun. Oh, dear ones, God did mean it. He did mean it. It doesn't mean... The suffering in the life of a Christian is redemptive. The Jesus Christ is the only suffering that is redemptive. But it is a manifestation of the redempting suffering of Jesus. It, is, it has as its source the redempting suffering of Jesus. Now what's cool about this is this was planned all along. Look at verse 13. It says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded. We talked about last week by way of review that Jesus was offered a narcotic before he went to the cross, he was offered a concoction that would have numbed his senses and not made it easier for him to endure the pain and suffering. They didn't do that for any reason. They couldn't have cared less about him. 
they would give that to crucifixion victims to make the executioner's job easier. He'll lay down on the cross and he won't pitch such a fit. It won't be hard to nail him down if we could just drug him up. And Jesus tasted of it, knew what it was, and spit it out of his mouth. And he did that because he was under the complete control of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't going to be in the control of any other substance, any other concoction. He was under the control of the Holy Spirit. Had he not done that, the enemy would have had a basis to accuse us that maybe our salvation is not what it was all cracked up to be. He could have accused, our, accused the profession of faith and the prophecy of Jesus' coming and his willingness to lay down on the cross of Calvary and say he didn't lay down his life, somebody took it. He was under the influence. Come on, people. How can you trust in such a death to be any benefit to you? But no, he was sober. Did you know that the Christian faith is always in need of reformation? It's always in need that we be alert and we have our heads up oriented toward heaven so that we dismiss what's wrong and we embrace what's right. Ronald Reagan said one time that freedom is not part of the soil of the United States. It's not in our DNA. It's not just a part of us having some different soil than they have in communist China. That the freedom, one generation after the other, is only as good as the next generation that passes it on. And faith is like that too. If we're not careful and we don't lay a strong foundation, we have a tendency to drift away from it. We better get oriented toward the God, be sober-minded, and have an alert profession of faith where we're looking up so that we can have a redder, a clear assessment of what it means to look out. He said, be sober-minded, gird up the loins of your mind, and rest your hope fully on the graces to be brought to you to in the revelation of Jesus Christ. This notion that that suffering occurred before the foundation of the world is no better illustrated than in the final week of our Lord before He went to the cross. Let's go look at it in John, I mean Matthew chapter 21. Will you go with me over there? And there are four things I want us to see here. And looking at this narrative, four things about the testimony and witness of the church that is ours. Hallelujah to His name. Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. You look at the tents in Isaiah 53. And the tents in Isaiah 53, which so, so prophesies the suffering of Jesus. Everything listed in Isaiah 53 is past tense. As if it had already happened. Because in the heart and mind of God it had already happened. It had already happened. Oh, away with the notion that somehow or another our sin moved God to respond to it. No, 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 no. God preordained all of this and predestined that the way would be through His Son all along. God doesn't react or respond to anything. God acts. He's not a reactionary God. He's the catalyst. He's the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. Praise His name. But look what happened in the triumphal entry. You know, in my Bible, it's got the triumphal entry as the heading. Don't you like that? The triumphal ending or entry. Because he's going in there to die. And that, that should be, that's a great title to put in the title of that paragraph. Or that, yeah, that, ver, that uh, chapter. Because indeed it was. You know, the setting, Jesus is going into Jerusalem for the final time on his earthly mission. And he goes in there and he's coming off of the of some great, wonderful things that God had worked supernaturally through him to heal and to display his glory and power. And now he comes to verse uh, 1 of chapter 21. Let's read it together. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. 
And if anyone says anything to you, you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who had bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. The triumphal entry. There are four things I want you to see about this this morning. First, I want you to see the preparation. The preparation. Then, I want you to see the prayer. Then I want you to see the power, and then I want you to see the praise. Four things. Preparation, preparation, prayer, power, and praise. Let's look at the preparation part. This is so cool. Jesus is coming in, and here's what the crowds are expecting. They're expecting salvation now. That's what the word Hosea means. Salvation, bring salvation now. Save now. Save now. Do it now. Overthrow the Romans now. Get rid of its oppression over us now. Sit on the throne of David now. Occupy the throne we know that is rightfully yours now. Now is the time. We demand it. Please, please we make an appeal. Bring salvation now. Their hope was that he was going to move into Jerusalem and not occupy a cross. Their hope was he was going to move into Jerusalem and sit on a throne you imagine how those hopes were dashed when they saw how it actually played out? This is our temptation that we face all the time. We have, oftentimes, we have Jesus on the cross and us on the throne. And we need to switch places and put us on the cross and Him on the throne. Because He's already been to the cross. But look at the preparation. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Look what it says. It says that in verse 4, and this was done... I'm sorry, verse uh, 2, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. That is so cool that God put that in the Bible. Because everything had been planned before the foundation of the world. So much so, in so much detail, that he had a colt out there, put strategically in a certain place, and knew people were going to be stewards over that colt, told the disciples to go in there and find it just as he said, which they did. Unloose the colt and bring it to him so he can make his entry. Marlon. Another account of this also says in the Gospels, he said, you're going to see a man 
who's walking across the street. He's going to have a pitcher of water. Catch up to him, and I want you to go up to him and a pitcher of water. You'll see him walking across the street and ask him where it is the Lord is to prepare for his supper, and he led him to the upper room. They went, and sure enough, exactly the way he said it, it played out. All of these events, and the Lord has just given us a picture in heaven that the cross was not something that man originated. It's a picture from heaven of the cross. The cross was that which God originated. Josh has read Romans 3.25 to us, and it says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation for his son. God, God sacrificed his son. It wasn't an angry Roman crowd or a religious, angry, envious mob. It was God who used them as a tool to bring about his perfect will. That was the preparation. He was slain before the foundation of the world. God already had it worked out. God already had it planned. God already had it ordained. And in God's mind, it had already happened. That's why Old Testament saints get saved the same way that New Testament saints get saved. Because in the heart and mind of God, it was a done deal. Time-wise, they looked forward to what was going to happen. Time-wise, we look back at what happened. But it doesn't matter which way you're on, which side you're on. Nobody will be in heaven because they earned it. No one will be in heaven because they earned it. No one will be in heaven because they earned it. No one will be in heaven because they earned it. Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, name him, whoever you want, Noah. They're all in heaven right now because of the grace of God. They looked forward to what was going to happen, but it didn't matter time-wise. These are the silly things we do because we're bound by time. We've got to get ourselves out of this ceiling and see a transcendent God who's not bound by time. And it already happened in His mind and heart. So when He shed that blood and the, God took blood in the Garden of Eden and clothed Adam and Eve with those animal skins, God shed first blood in the Bible. And salvation has always been through the sacrifice of the substitute. It was a shape of things to come. The best thing to do, or one of the best things to do when you study the Bible, is take something that's first mentioned in the Bible, the first time it's mentioned, see the context in which it's mentioned, and follow it from there, and you'll gain understanding. And the first time that blood was ever shed in the Bible was in the Garden of Eden, and God's the one who did it. And then you move on hundreds of years later, and you're at Mount Sinai. And what does God do? He gives them the law. Because He's just. He gives them the tabernacle because He's a Savior. And He gave it to them at the same time. Why would He give it to them at the same time? Because salvation has always been through the substitute. He said, I'll give you this law, but you're not going to be able to follow it. And then I'm going to give you a system of sacrifice. And I'm going to give you a bloody temple. And I'm going to put it right in the middle. And you're going to be disgusted by the amount of blood that flows through this temple. But it will be a daily reminder of you of what your sin cost me. The lengths at which I would go to preserve my glory, my righteous, just nature, and express love to you and redeem you forever. That's what I'm willing to do. Praise His glorious name. So the, the preparation work was before the foundation of the world. God shed the blood of His Son before Adam ever fell. Praise His name. Praise His name. If it's any other way, if there's any other way, and we see God in any other way, that is nothing but idolatry. If we see God getting caught up in a, a system of events that got outside His control, kind of caught up in mob rule and carried to do something that He hadn't planned, He's not God anymore. Whoever planned it's God. Oh man, 
We need to, we need to minimize us and maximize Him. We need to go on the computer screen of our life and go up. That's one thing I can do on the computer. I know how to minimize something. We need to go up there and get on that little thing right there and click that thing and go and get it down and get a vision on our computer of a great, awesome, omniscient, proactive God. That's who our God is. Hallelujah. And all the implications of that could not be more important. It means that your birth in the kingdom of God was planned before the foundation of the world. i tell you another thing it means too, Ashley, and that's one of your favorite verses in the Bible, and so is mine. Oh, listen to this. Jesus said that the love that I have for the Father and the love that the Father has for me is the same love I have for you. Oh my, did you hear that? The same love that Jesus has for the Father and the same love that the Father has for Jesus is the same love He has for you. Goodness gracious. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? You know what? Think about this for a minute. What's the character and nature of that love? It's perfect. And what's the character and nature of that love as far as how long it's been in place? forever. That means that before you and I were ever born in eternity past, God loved you. He loves you now and He'll love you forevermore. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Because the love relationship between the Father and the Son is eternal. It doesn't have a beginning. It's not a, it's a line. It's not a ray. It's a line. And man, God prepared all of that before the foundation of the world. He came. He's a prepared God for a prepared cross in order to prepare people for heaven, a place where He prepared. It's all the work of Him and none of us. Matter of fact, just a little snippet of, uh, of uh, a reason to kind of run around the building three or four times. Look at First Peter chapter 1. Look at First Peter chapter 1. We just read it. In verse 21. 21. You know what? Read the Bible long enough and stay with the Bible long enough and i tell you what it will do. It will perfect your praise. Because you know what it will leave you with? It will leave you with one conclusion. That everything that has been done in my life is a gift from God. Every bit of God's redemptive activity in my life has been Him. Every bit of it. I want you to look at verse 21. Who through Him... You believe in God. What does that make belief? It's through Him. It makes belief a gift, doesn't it? Anything that you and I know definitively about Jesus Christ and believe and stake our future on is a gift. That changes your attitude. That changes our attitude toward our praise. It will make it perfect, or it will make it in the process of perfection. It's a gift from God. So look at the preparation. And then let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. Go back there with me and we'll quickly look at the other three. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Oh, bless His holy name. Bless His holy name. Bless His holy name. You know what? Knowing these truths, meditating upon these truths, and receiving them as truth prepares you for future suffering. That's His aim. So we see the preparation. The donkey was tied. The guy was walking across the street with some water, just like he said. It happened exactly the way he said. And he comes into the city, and they're calling for salvation now. Hosea to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosea, Hosanna. 
in the highest. We need a daily reminder, and we'll have one, a, a daily reminder of the reason for the cross. We need a daily reminder, just like they needed a reminder in Revelation, that any throne is preceded by a cross. There is no crown without the cross. There is no redemption without the suffering of the Redeemer. They were calling for it now. We want it our way. Isn't that the cry of humanity? I want to be saved my way. I've got it figured out. I want it my way and on my terms, I want to have it my way. It sounds right that I could clean myself up and tack believing in God in there and express a little bit of faith and then keep myself through works. Or maybe I just sort of work myself to death. But I can be as good as God. I can be. Why does just God get to be God? Salvation is saying, Uncle, and letting God save you His only way. And that's through His Son. We always think, want things on our terms. We've got to get away from that immediately. So what does He do? In 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Oh man, what boldness. You know what? We've talked about this time and again before, but really, one of the miracles of the Bible is not that they killed Jesus, but they waited so long to do it. Because every word that came out of his mouth, I mean, they were picking up a rock. Just let me have at him. You know, I mean, it was just over and over. So obviously it was the straining power of the Holy Spirit because God had a preordained time. He goes in there and turns over the temple, the tables in the temple. You know why? We've talked about this time and again. The reason he did was, is he said, I am coming in here to Jerusalem to give my life on the cross of Calvary to purchase access for these people to God. And I'm willing to give up my life to do it. And you're profiting by exploiting these people and perverting their worship. I is willing, I'm willing to give up my life. You use religion to line your pockets. Not much has changed. God deserves to be worshipped. You and I, on our own, can't. Something's got to change. We're separated from Him. And Jesus said, I will be the intercessor. The Bible says in Ezekiel, I sought for a man to stand in the gap and make up the hedge before me, before the land, that I would not destroy it. And I couldn't find one. So Jesus is prophesied in Isaiah and that text as well. I will raise up an intercessor. I can't find one among you. Then nobody qualifies among you. I can't find one. There's not one among you. I've recruited and I found nobody knowing there is not anybody, but I will raise up, the arm of the Lord will raise up the salvation. The arm of the Lord will raise up the intercessor. Jesus said, I will be the go-between. I will put myself in harm's way. What kind of love would do that? What kind of love would stand between righteous judgment and unworthy, unworthy people? The love of God, motivated by the glory of God, accomplished by the Son of God. Little wonder he was offended. Little wonder he was offended. My house should be called a house of communion. My house should be called a house of, 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 of intimacy. 
of worship, of getting into the inner place of worship with the God of it all. That's what He created us for. This communion, I'm willing to die for, it means that much to me. It's not that they just mean that much to me. God means that much to me. His glory is at stake. I want people to worship all over the world from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. His salvation needs to be declared. Repented, repented sin needs to be repented of and it needs to be received. I'm willing to do all of that and yet you're exploiting these people, lining up your pockets to do it and in so doing that, so downsizing the blood that I'm willing to pay that you have no idea, you have no idea of the offense you are to me. We just read a while ago in First Peter, didn't we? You're not redeemed with corruptible things from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Oh, man, the lengths at which God would go to reach and redeem you and I. So we see the prayer. He prepared His Son before the foundation of the world, and He gave us a relationship, and prayer and relationship are the same word. Prayer and communion, same word. Prayer is a grace imposed upon us to enter into the presence of God predicated upon a relationship. So there's the prayer. It's not that this is a house of prayer. It's that we're the tabernacle of God as believers and He's come into our house to dwell and we get to interact with Him in prayer. That's the grace that was purchased at Calvary. We get to talk to and commune with the Lord of it all. Every single day, moment by moment by moment, we can practice the presence of God and live in an awareness of Him through His dear Son and have confidence that when we speak to Him, we have an audience with Him and have confidence that if we'll listen to Him, He will speak in return to us. There's the prayer. So you see the preparation work, the prayer that comes as a result of the purchase. And look at the power. Let's look at verse 14. Oh man. On the heels of prayer comes the power. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of God, Son of David. Enough with and let's turn our back on having a form of godliness and denying the power therein. God is still powerful and still mighty and still moves. He still does it. He still does it. We can still latch on to His promises. We don't need His power in order to shore up His revelation, but we like to see His power because of His revelation. We trust Him. We don't need anything beyond this revelation, but God does powerful things all the time, and the greatest thing He ever does is save somebody from the kingdom of darkness and snatch them out and make them a part of the kingdom of light. He still does that. The gospel is still powerful. Our profession is still powerful and God still moves the power of heaven on behalf of the elect when we come to Him. There's power that comes with prayer. Prayer leads to power. Prayer is power. We talked about the fact that Oswald Chambers said one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard outside the Bible that prayer doesn't prepare you for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. There is power that comes when God's people get latch hold of the promises of God and are tenacious about it. God likes for us to take a promise and pray it back to Him and latch on to it with tenacity and with a diligence and a persistence. We just will not let go. It's almost like Jacob when he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to continue to petition you. And as I petition you, if you want to change something about that, just change me. Reveal it to me. But I'm telling you right now, I've told you one of my favorite verses in the Bible, two of them actually, is this. Remember the word you have spoken to your servant upon which you've caused me to trust. It's been my comfort and my affliction because your word has given me life. Man, we stand on it. Stand firm. Stand fast. Stand immovable. Pray to Him. Get oriented to Him. Pray back what He says to you and trust Him regardless of what you see. Walk by faith and not by sight. Remember this. We've got a kingdom that cannot be seen. It's coming. He's coming back. He's going to receive us to His own. All the promises are fixed and sure. And they were sealed the moment He raised His Son from the dead. So there was preparation. He was, he was slain before the foundation of the world. There's prayer because he purchased the relationship by which we could have communion. That means everything to God. That's a great word, that word communion. And there's power that arises from that. And what flows from that is praise. Look at it. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were praising him and shouting. And they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yeah. Yeah, I hear what they're saying. Because if they don't cry out, the rocks will. Somebody's going to praise me. And somebody's going to praise the Father. Somebody's going to do it. I promise you that. Yeah, I heard what they said. They were indignant because death can't stand life. And she so said, Okay. Do you hear what they're saying? And they look, Jesus said to them, Have you not heard, never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? <laughs> perfected praise? Why? Because there's no level of trust. There's no level of rest and quietness and serenity and confidence. There's no level of it that's better expressed probably than through a nursing infant. I've never had, of all four of our children, when Jill nursed them, I've never had one of them just pop out and go, you check this out? Is this okay? You sure this is healthy? What have you been eating lately? No, there was a, there's just this confident rest that everything I'm going to receive from my mother is wholesome, healthy, and good for me. And indeed it is. As a matter of fact, it's so good for you. There are nutrients that are coming out of that that man cannot produce and reproduce in any measure. It's supernatural. It's, it's something that God does. And they've also proven time and again, and we've talked about this before, that with a nursing mother and her child, as she draws the child close to her, that there, she emits from her body chemicals that go into the child that protect their immune system and ensure their health in greater measure. Proximity. Proximity means power. You nestle up to your Lord. Proximity means power. He's nestled up to you, but you can nestle up to Him. You have as much of God as you want. You have as much as you want. We can nestle up to Him. And I, hey, let me take it. Let's, let's let the Scriptures take it to another place and not call Him Sir. Or mister. My children call me sir. That's out of respect and reverence. I demand that. But the greatest thing I've ever heard them call me is daddy. 
Daddy. Abba, Father. Daddy, most affectionate term of endearment known to man. Daddy. There's something about that word. In the middle of the day, you get a call. And on the other line, sometimes I can't see my phone because it's not very, you can't tell who's calling. So I'll just answer it. And somebody on the other line, it might be Catherine, say, Daddy? Why that? And do, oh, something happens. You know, you talk about blessing. If I feel that way, and I'm a goober head, what must a father feel like when his children address him such? So that's irreverent. No, it's biblical. It's biblical and it's profound reverence because the closer you get to know Him and the more you're reverencing, the more you want to be around Him. Fear of God's a unique fear. It's, all, it's in a category all its own. Other fears make you draw away from its source. When you fear of God, it makes you draw to Him. Out of the mouths of nursing infants and babes, you have perfected praise. It doesn't get any better than that. And it doesn't get any closer to that than what is the possibility for a saint who's 85 years old could nestle up in the, the lap of her dad, her spiritual father, her daddy, and draw from him and his endless supply. And there's power in that proximity. Oh, saint, saint. That's what he meant to purchase all along. See, other people were buying and selling because they had no idea what he was up to. He was redemptive. He had a mission. He had a plan. He had a plan to make that possible. And you know what? For a saint, it is possible. Praise His holy name. There was preparation on that day. Everything happened according to His plan. When you read through this with your children, start noticing that and pulling out of that, out of the narrative when you look at it. Everything was prepared. It wasn't Jesus going up into a, getting caught up into a frenzy. He was heading straight for where he was heading for. And he knew exactly what was going on. Go get that colt. There's a colt tied over there. And you're going to ask those people to get the colt. And they're going to give it to him and loose it over there and give it to you. And, they're going to do blah, blah, blah. and he had everything just exactly, exactly, it went exactly to order because it already happened. In the mind of God, it already happened. In these last days, now it's manifest. And the suffering leads to salvation and the salvation leads to life hallelujah to his name there was preparation then there was prayer they commune with God out of that flowed power and from that was great praise that's the inheritance of God's people that's church that's church that's church Man, let's quit holding church. Let's let it go. Amen. You don't come here to go to church. You bring church with you. You get to commune with Him day by day. I love the lyric and we'll close. You know, I was talking to Lynn the other day about this and some of these, some of these old hymns. I like a bunch of different songs, but some of these old hymns, these people knew their theology like nobody's business. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Christ in you. The hope of 
glory. How much did you want of him? How much do I want of him? 